0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. The
1: scripture for today is Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. If you are reading from the Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 850. When you're ready, please stand for the reading of God's word. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is God's word. You may be seated.
0: Well, as you can see, we're uh, continuing our journey through Mark's gospel. We find ourselves in Mark 14. So uh, to the joy of some and maybe to the chagrin of others, we're done with that chapter on eschatology um, there in Mark 13 when Jesus is talking about the end of, the, of things to come. Um, but what we're going to do now and what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks as we work through the remainder of Mark's gospel will wrap up somewhere near the end of October. Um, Mark is going to go full bore concentration into the death of Jesus and the crucifixion, the resurrection that is to come. And what he's going to do here as he rounds out of that last great final teaching of Jesus in Mark 13 and takes us into Mark 14, before he calls us to just come and examine the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, he first hits pause and he inserts this, this little episode This little scene of a woman who is unhinged, unashamed, unabandoned in her worship of the king who came to give his life as a ransom for many. What we're going to see here in the weeks to come is that there is sort of like this air of darkness that sort of clouds these verses as Jesus is going to be betrayed, Jesus will be abandoned, Jesus will be beaten, Jesus will be crucified. But in sort of the darkness of his death, there is this bright and singular shining light, a picture of someone whom we're going to call the prodigal woman who's going to show us what extravagant, lavish, unsparing worship looks like of the king who is absolutely outright worthy of this kind of worship. And so what we need to do is we need to pray. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of his word. So what I want you to do is sort of look to your right and your left. This is the same invitation here that we give. Look at the person next to you, right and left. I want you to be praying for this person right now as we go to bat. Don't just sort of passively sit by. But actively right now, and if you know their name, pray for them by name. If you don't know them by name, lock that face into your your mind and ask right now, God, we need you to make these words come alive in the life of this person this morning. All right? Let's do it. Father, this morning we are going to hear words spoken. We are going to hear a sermon, a speech, a message, but this morning what we need is for this speech and this message not to be in word only. What we need is for this time to be marked by the power of the Holy Spirit Causing our eyes to see Jesus, causing our minds to understand the scriptures, causing our hearts to burn within us. Because the Holy Spirit is demonstrating himself in power so that faith would come to rest in the power of God himself, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come with an expectation to hear from you this morning. We need you to speak to us. We need you to expose those dark corners of our heart that love to worship everything other than Christ. We need you to conform us into the full stature of Christ. And I'm totally incapable of making that happen. So Father, would this morning, the proclamation of the gospel not be in word only, but in the Spirit, in power, and with full conviction. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you know your Bible well, then you will know one of the most famous stories found in all the Bible is found in the gospel of Luke chapter 15, because when you go to Luke chapter 15, what you find is a story, a parable that Jesus uses to teach those who are around him listening, and it's a parable we call the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the word prodigal is admittedly sort of a weird word, a word we hardly ever use, but it is a word that can have at least two meanings. One meaning for the word prodigal is this idea of wastefulness, recklessness, and it's the reason why we call the parable the parable of the prodigal son because the younger son in that story that Jesus tells is marked, defined by a recklessness, a wastefulness. And so we look at that story and we go, this is the parable of the prodigal son. But another meaning for this word, this weird word prodigal, can also be the idea of, of something that's extravagant, something that's lavish. Something that is unsparing. And in his book about Luke chapter 15 called The Prodigal God, author Tim Keller picks up on this second meaning of the word prodigal whenever he talks about God as the one who is extravagant, our God who is lavish, our God who is unsparing in his mercy and grace. And it's when we turn our attention to Mark chapter 14 verses 1 through 9 that we find another picture of a prodigal. But this morning it's not a picture of a prodigal son nor is this a parable about our prodigal God. But what we find is a picture of the prodigal woman. Because if there was every person in the Bible who is seen as extravagant in her worship, lavish in her devotion, unsparing in her actions, it would be the picture of this woman that we find this morning who is going to bow and worship King Jesus with full tilt abandonment because King Jesus is just simply worthy of that kind of worship. And so before Mark turns our full attention to the crucifixion and the events that surround the crucifixion of Christ and his subsequent resurrection on the third day, Mark wants to hit pause and call us to come and observe the prodigal woman. And that's what we begin to see there starting off in verses 1 through 3. We see a picture of the prodigal woman. Look in your copy of Scripture. Look at what Mark writes for us starting off in verse 1. He says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him, that is, arrest Jesus. They wanted to do it by stealth because they're cowards. And they want to kill Him because they hate Him. But they said to themselves, well, we want to kill him, but, man, we don't want to do it during the feast. Because that would stir an uproar up from the crowd. And so while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of a man called Simon the leper, as he, Jesus, was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, perfume, of pure nard. That was the kind of perfume Mark tells us it's very costly, and what she does is she breaks the flask and pours it out over the head of Jesus. You see, Mark is going to become a very precise journalist over these next couple of of weeks as he unravels for us the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. And what Mark tells us here is that we are now two days out before the Passover, the feast feast. Of the unleavened bread. And then, when you sort of survey and step back and see all the kinds of festivals and feasts that God's people were meant to celebrate, the one that sort of held supreme significance for God's people was the Passover, because the Passover was the celebration, it was a time of thanksgiving for God's miraculous deliverance of his people from Egyptian slavery. And Mark tells us now that as this Passover drew near, as pilgrims were flooding into the city of Jerusalem, the religious leaders buckled down on their commitment to arrest and kill Jesus. You see them begin to hate Jesus as soon as Mark chapter 3. You see it repeated in Mark chapter 11... It repeats itself again, their desire to put him to death in Mark chapter 12. And now they're like, the straw has broken the camel's back. This thing's done. We need to kill this rebel rabbi. We need to get him off our turf. Because if you remember, Mark chapter 12 was Jesus in the temple where people were coming and trying to make him look a fool by asking him a series of questions. And Jesus, with authority, showing that he is the king of wisdom and of power, rebuffs every one of their questions and then eventually turns around and sticks a question into their face, a question that they can't answer. And you can see now they're like, this thing's done. He's over with. We want to kill him, and we want to get him out of our hair. And so they commit to arrest Jesus and kill him, but notice that they want to do it by stealth, Mark says. Not during the Passover, so they cannot stir the crowd up, because at this stage in the game, the crowd's still pro Jesus. But in God's overruling providence, even though these religious leaders want to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, God completely overrides their cowardly design. They wanted a private death without observation. I think that's the implication. They want to go take Jesus to a dark corner, kill him, so that way he'll just fade off the pages of history. But instead, what they are compelled to do is to crucify Jesus, not in a corner, but they're compelled to crucify Jesus publicly. During the very height of the Passover, so far from Jesus' crucifixion and subsequent resurrection being done in a corner, what they do is they take place before the public eye, before hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses, proving the awesome truth of Psalm 2, that the kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But it is he who sits in the heavens and laughs. It's the Lord God Almighty who holds them in derision because the one who is sovereign, the Lord God who is king over the history of mankind will see that his plans and his purposes are going to come to pass for the ransom of many souls. And so it's the Genesis 50-20 effect. These men's evil plans, what they meant for evil, God grabs, completely turns for good. These guys are clueless that their plan to murder the Christ is actually going to be the salvation of souls for many. God's plans and purposes are going to come to pass. But notice that right as you roll out of verses 1 and 2 into verse 3, it's a shift of stark contrast as you move from the conniving hatred of these religious leaders into the full-tilt abandonment of this woman. Notice that Mark shifts the scene to the house of Simon the leper there in verse 3, a house that's in a city called Bethany, where we find Jesus reclining at table. In other words, he's just hanging around a table right now, and he's eating food with his friends. And it's in the midst of them just chilling, relaxing, eating food. Mark says a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard. He tells us it was very costly. And what she does is she breaks the flask and just pours it all out on her. You go into John's gospel, it wasn't just a drenching of his head. It actually was so much that it went down to his feet. And this woman who John tells us is actually Mary of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus bows before Jesus at his feet, takes her hair, and begins to wipe and clean his feet. She just completely drenches Jesus, full tilt, unabandoned, no cost too great, cracks, pours, and anoints Jesus in this way. And what I love about verse 3 is that with a single verse, Mark just simply says, remember those guys who are just sort of off in the dark corner trying to put Jesus to death? I want you to notice sort of the bright light of this woman's worship in the midst of all this darkness. And notice that this woman doesn't come to Jesus trying to earn anything from him. This isn't worship trying to shove Jesus in a corner saying, listen, you owe me something. I'm going to break open this flask of perfume that's very expensive because I'm going to expect you to give me something in return. That's not what this kind of worship is. She doesn't come to Jesus trying to earn anything from him. She doesn't break the flask of perfume and pour out its content so that Jesus will feel obliged to pay her back. Rather, her costly worship is directly tied to her love for the king who is the resurrection and the life. Because again, when you go back into John's gospel, this event takes place in John chapter 12. The event that takes place in John chapter 11 is Lazarus dying, being resurrected by Jesus... And I think what's lingering in the back of Mary's mind is this. I have just seen the king exercise sovereign power over death itself. And it compels her and motivates her to go full tilt for Jesus, recognizing that he is worthy of costly worship. And you've got to know that her worship was extremely, extremely costly. You glance down in verse 5. You see in the harumph of the disciples that we'll look here in a minute, they give us this little clue that this bottle of perfume was more than 300 denarii, which is about the average man's salary for an entire year during that time. So imagine this, husband. You go home and you get some big bonus check. Average salary in our area is about $45,000, $50,000. And you go buy a single bottle of perfume. That costs $50,000. And you give it to your baby. Baby, I love you. And here's how much I love you, man. I'm giving you a bottle of perfume. One, $50,000. Use it wisely. And next week you come back and you're like, "Where's, where's the perfume at? And she's like, I cracked that baby open and poured it on someone's head. <laughs> you might be a little disappointed. You might be a little disappointed. 300 denarii, they say. Right, the assumption here is that this bottle of perfume for like her day in time is basically like her Roth IRA. It was her investment savings, her rainy day fund. If all hell broke loose in her family and her life, and like there was no money, no income, and famine, and no food, and all those things, there is at least this thing. This flask of pure and worth at least a year's salary. But in a moment of quiet commitment, She looks at Jesus and resolves in a single moment, Jesus is worthy of this sacrifice. Worthy. No ifs, ands, or buts. Not turning off a little thing and like a little drop. She goes, breaks it open, pours it all out on him. Worthy. No reserve on my part. She looks at King Jesus and tells them that he is worthy of this kind of worship. And what I love is that her extravagant, lavish, unsparing worship was incredibly tangible because, again, you go into John's gospel, and what John tells us is that this house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume after she cracks open the flask and pours it out on Christ. In other words, if you were to walk into that room in that moment after she had just broken the flask and poured it out on Christ, you could smell the extravagance of her devotion is tangible. It wasn't done in a corner, it was put out in front of everybody. The lingering aroma would publicly declare to everyone the inestimable value that she placed on Jesus. You see, this is the nature of prodigal worship. This is the nature of of prodigal worship. Prodigal worship is extravagant. Prodigal worship is lavish. Prodigal worship is unsparing, and rightly so, because King Jesus is just simply that worthy. He's just simply that worthy. So when we watch the prodigal woman go full tilt in her worship, she teaches us that there is no sacrifice too great for the king. But as you roll out of verse 3 into verses 4 and 5, what you find and what we quickly see is that not everyone agrees with the sentiment. Not everyone agrees with the sentiment. For no sooner than the flask is broken, we find an immediate response of criticism. And that's really what we see is response one. There's going to be two responses to the prodigal woman's prodigal worship. And response one is the disciples are going to criticize her as a result of her prodigal worship. Mark tells us there that there were some who said to themselves indignantly, notice that word, they were marked by indignation as a result of her prodigal worship. They asked the question, why in the world was this ointment wasted like that? You Don't you know this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor? And they scolded her is what Mark tells us. So here's the woman abandoned and unsparing in her worship of Jesus, but while she worshipped, critics immediately arise and express their indignation at her extravagance. For these critics, they couldn't tell the difference between an overflow of grace and an outpouring of waste. For them, as she poured out the perfume, this wasn't a picture of grace welling up to one who is worthy of this kind of worship for them the pouring out of the perfume was man that's just complete total illogical impractical waste and so what they do is they scolded her and the idea behind that word scold man our english language falls short so many times because the idea behind this word scold is to snort with anger have you ever been so angry that like you're snorting out of your nose I mean, like, right? You're just like, ooh, like, man, what's going on here? You've ever seen a bull fight before? A matador goes out there and provokes the bull. It gets so angry it starts to stomp and to paw the ground and starts snorting. Mark says that's the kind of reaction that these people have right now as a result of watching Mary pour out that perfume. They are so incensed at her prodigal worship that they would rather be fueled by indignation and snort with anger than repent and see that they are falling far short of this kind of prodigal worship. And so when you see them snort with this kind of anger, scold the prodigal woman, it just sort of begs the question, why? I hope you guys ask questions of your Bible whenever you read through it. Like, don't just read this and go, okay, they're really mad and scolding. Next, ask the question, why? Why? Like, why in the world would a bottle of perfume poured out on someone's head stoke this kind of indignation and anger? I think the answer is when you scale back and just sort of hit pause and you think about why they would respond in this way is because their response was one of conviction. They were convicted by her costly act of worship. Just think about it. Many people have no problem with moderate and measured devotion to Jesus. If you're just sort of totally low-key and moderate and measured and logical and practical in your worship, people are going to look at that and be like, well, good for you. Many people have no problem with a comfortable and convenient pursuit of Jesus. Well, good for you. But when that one person shows up, When that one person gets saved, when that person rounds the corner into your community group, when you grew up in a youth group and that person got radical for Jesus, on fire for Jesus, they showed up full tilt and abandoned in their pursuit of Jesus, this prodigal pursuit of Christ has a way of exposing and challenging our mediocre pursuit of Christ. And so, in the end, I think their response of indignation and anger was that of them being convicted. If anybody in this scene should have been full tilt over Jesus, surely it's the disciples, but they're not. It's the woman. And in Jesus' day, the woman would have carried baggage because she was a woman. She was in a place she shouldn't have been. Dinner time around the table wasn't the woman's place in this culture, but she says, I don't care. I'm going to show up, go full tilt. Jesus is worth it. And the disciples look back and they're completely taken aback by the prodigal worship of the prodigal woman. And I think these fools were convicted. I think they were convicted. Because you have to know that when they're sitting here shouting about perfume waste and money for the poor, man, that ain't the real issue. That's not the real issue. The real issue is that the woman's wholehearted devotion to Jesus had exposed their half-hearted devotion to Jesus. And rather than repent, they'd rather scold. I mean, after all, if they can write off the prodigal woman's pursuit of Jesus as outlandish, I mean, that's just fanaticism. Man, that's just extreme. That new person who just got saved, I just give them a little bit of time. They'll come back down into mediocrity with the rest of us. What we are so prone to do in our heart is not look at that and go, oh, God, give me a fire for you. We look at that and go, shut up, sit down, become mediocre like us. And we try to put that person down into their place. And I think that's what these disciples are doing. I think they're looking at her, they're challenged, and instead of the challenge of her prodigal pursuit of Christ leading them to repent and go, Christ, help us to be like her, what they do is go, God, get her out of here because she's too challenging. And we can be so prone to do the very very same thing. We want to feel better about our mediocrity. And so what we try to do is do whatever we can to write off this outlandish fanaticism, this extremism that looks like extravagant, lavish, unsparing love for Jesus. And unfortunately, not much has changed in our day. You see this happening in the time of Christ. The exact same stuff happens today. Right? You walk away from a real career for the sake of Jesus. Where are you going to be called? A fool Walk away from mom and dad to serve the Lord among the poor and hurting. Guess what you're going to be called? Impractical. Walk away from an opportunity for a cushy retirement and head off to the mission field. You will be called extreme and out of your mind as you drift off and waste your life. But there's an old Anglican minister, a man named J.C. Ryle. I I love this quote. It should be up on the screen behind me. He says this here and a challenge to that way of thinking. He says that once a man understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ and dying for him, he will begin to see something. He will begin to see that nothing is too good, nothing is too costly to give to Christ. He will begin to ask himself, how can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? He will fear something. He will fear wasting time, wasting talents, wasting money, and wasting affections on the things of this world. But he will not be afraid of wasting them on his Savior He will fear something. He will fear going into extremes about business, extremes about money, extremes about politics, extremes about pleasure, but he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. And it's not because this guy, this girl, is trying to earn something from Christ. It's purely out of a motivation of God has saved me. I once was blind, but now I see grace is my motivation. And because God gave all in His Son, I can give all to Christ. And this will permeate every aspect, every corner of my life. Marriage, children, work, neighbor, money... Thoughts, words, actions, nothing is too much for Christ. Listen, in our day and age, just as in the time of Christ, those who go full tilt, abandoned for Jesus will be criticized. You will be criticized. Go to work tomorrow and begin to, by the grace of Christ, live in a way that is sort of very prodigal woman-esque. People are going to look at you like you've plumb gone bonkers, man. But in heaven, the promise that we have is there's a king who is applauding this kind of grace-motivated worship. And far from unashamed, unsparing, costly worship being the abnormal life, King Jesus goes so far as to commend prodigal worship as the normal life. That's really what verses 6 through 9 are all about. Right, you round the corner. We've seen response one. Response one is prodigal worship, criticize. Jesus sees prodigal worship and he commends it, he applauds it, he praises it. That's what he's doing in verses six through nine when he tells the disciples listen, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me, he says. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And what I love is verse 9 right here. I mean, this is just straight-up commendation from the king. And truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We are just one of the many thousands of proofs of this reality by the simple fact we're talking about it right now. Some 2,000 years removed. You see, this is praise of the highest order from the king for the prodigal woman's prodigal worship. Jesus responds to her with joyful appreciation. Yes, he says, yes, let, okay. The money could have been given to the poor. But in one sense, if you think about it, it had been given to the poor. It had been given to Jesus himself, who the apostle Paul tells us, for our sake, became poor, so that by his poverty, we might become rich. This, Paul says, is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has been given to all who look to Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is commending full tilt, unhinged, prodigal worship. And I don't know about you, but when I read this story, man, it flat out challenges me. This woman puts me against the ropes and is like, man, she's, just, she's laying into me. She's a flat out challenge to me. Because I can, I in an instant, man, the Rolodex is already running in the movie screen in my mind. There are so many areas in my life where prodigal worship, extravagant, lavish, unsparing, costly worship, does not define my life. And my hope is that you're being challenged too. Because one day we're going to be able to stand and talk with this woman in the resurrection, and you got to know I got questions for this for this gal. (laughs) And I want to know, like, like, why did you do this? She knew the cultural conventions of the day. She pitches them out the window and says, I'm charging hard after this king. I want to know what prompted her to be so extravagant, so lavish, so unsparing, so unashamed in her worship of Jesus. What was driving her in this moment? Like, what was it about Jesus that motivated her to do what so many people find so hard to do? Because my, my, my guess is that most of us, it's not that we lack opportunities to be publicly extravagant, publicly lavish, publicly unsparing in our worship of Jesus. It's that when the opportunity comes, we sort of go, we just turn and go the other way so we can go over here and be mediocre measured very practical and logical in our pursuit of jesus but in that moment when the prodigal woman came and stood before jesus she just said don't care what y'all think bow down and went full tilt worship public visible for all the world to see. Why? What drove you to do that? You see, when we observe the prodigal worship of this woman, her actions force us to ask the question, am I extravagant? Am I lavish? Am I unsparing in my love for Jesus like this? Am I? Am I full tilt abandoned in my devotion to Jesus like this? In other words, the radical unashamed worship of the prodigal woman challenges us to ask, do I love Jesus like this? So I don't think Jesus goes, guys, this is really great, but it's sort of over the top, isn't it? <laughs> he looks at this and says, this is what it is. This is what pursuit of me looks like. Because if we put our ear to the text and we just sort of listen, the whisper of King Jesus is, I'm worthy of this kind of pursuit. I'm worthy of this kind of worship. I'm the King of mercy. I'm the king of grace. I'm the king. I'm the son of man. I'm the compassionate shepherd. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I have power over Satan, power over sin, power over death, power over hell, power over nature. I have the authority to forgive sins. And when we taste that grace in its fullest measure, prodigal worship will ooze out of us uncontrollably, just like that ointment flowed and oozed uncontrollably out of that flask when it was broke upon the head of Christ. It will happen. You see, when it all boils down in the end, I think the main idea of our text, it just comes down to this. Our prodigal king is worthy of prodigal worship. I think you're supposed to read verses 1 through 9, Mark 14, and this is what you're supposed to walk away with. Our prodigal king is worthy of prodigal worship. In other words, our extravagant, our lavish, our unsparing king of glory is worthy of extravagant, lavish, unsparing, full-tilt, costly worship. A lifetime of unashamed worship is the appropriate response to our prodigal king. So before Mark turns our full attention to the crucifixion of King Jesus and the remainder of his gospel... He first says, guys, let's just concentrate on something and consider some things here real quick. And he highlights the prodigal nature of the woman's worship as an invitation for us to come and do the same. So my question for you is this. Do you love Jesus like this? Do you love Jesus like this? The answer for me is, not always. And so then in that honest kind of confession, let us not be like the disciples. Oh, she was just sort of being extreme there, wasn't she? And somehow try to self-justify our mediocrity. Whenever we bump up against this picture, let's do the opposite of what the disciples did. Beg the king of grace for grace to pursue him in a way That is good and right. Because Mark 14, 1 through 9 isn't meant as a guilt trip. Mark 14, 1 through 9 is meant for us to come and go, wow, I'm really not the woman here. I'm more like the disciples. Lord Jesus, please help me by your grace to fuel me to lay down my life and pursue you in full tilt, unhinged, unashamed abandonment. Because I'm going to need you. Oh, how I need you. Tomorrow you're going to wake up and go, God, I need you to help me pursue you today. Because every other thing in this world is saying, pursue me, pursue me, pursue me, pursue me, pursue me. And what we do is we become inundated with all these things and our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And we love to go and attach ourselves to everything other than Christ. And so tomorrow when we lift our heads off the pillow, Christ, help me to pursue you with prodigal worship. Monday night, God help me, please forgive me when I pursued other things with prodigal worship. Tuesday morning, wake up, Christ, by your grace, help me, empower me to pursue you with prodigal worship. Tuesday night, rinse, repeat, Wednesday, Wednesday night. Prodigal worship from a prodigal people isn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Prodigal worship by a prodigal people is a grace-motivated, Christ-centered endeavor. And it's people in prayer saying, I can't, you can, Lord Jesus, please help. Because prodigal worship is intricately tied to prayer. Do you love Jesus like this? Let's pray. Father, we need you. Oh, how we need you. Christ Christ. We need you, oh, how we, we need you. Spirit, we need you. Oh, how we need you. Father, help us just to be honest with ourselves so that we can look at the prodigal woman and go, you know what, she is just a flat-out challenge to me. She exposes those dark areas of my heart that I pursue with abandonment that are not Jesus. God, help us keep us from ourselves, from trying to bristle up with indignation and anger at others who challenge us in our church, in our community group. That we wouldn't look to them and then somehow heap guilt on ourselves if someone is pursuing Jesus with prodigal abandonment. God, help us to look at them and go, God, I'm so thankful for the way they ooze Jesus. Help me, Lord Jesus, to pursue you in this way. And then, God, would we remember grace? You are the king who is marked by grace upon grace. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to walk in a way where we say, I can't do this. You can empower me to do this. God, please help. It's in your name we pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.